0: Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio.
1: Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. To those of you who are tuning into V-Radio for the first time, please visit my website, v-radio.org. There you can find archives of more shows like this one, or you can click on my must-see TV tab to see a list of free documentaries you can watch on the Internet. They're pertinent to most of my show's substance. Uh, Today we are honored to once again uh, have Senator Mike Gravel uh, will be Getting into that in just a moment. Um, I have another announcement that to those of you who um, listen to the show regularly, uh, I've been uploading podcasts directly. Those do not send out emails to you whenever I upload them, but you will find some great shows that I did uh, when I went out into the field with Occupy Lansing, Occupy Detroit, and Occupy Flint. Um, You can find all of those uh, by going to the website. So, that being said, um, Mike, it's great to have you back on the show.
0: Well, it's great to be on, Neil.
1: Excellent. Well, Mike, um, you know, since I'm sure a lot of my listeners, you know, because it has been a while, uh, you know, are new to the whole Mike Gravel phenomenon. Um, let's go over just a little bit, you know, kind of in brief to get them acquainted with you. Uh, first of all, uh, I've listed you as the reason why we don't have the draft. You want to talk about that experience? That-
0: That's accurate. I was able to wage a filibuster in 1971 for five months, and it forced uh, Nixon to make a a deal whereby the draft would be forcibly expiring in 1973, and we haven't had to reinstitution the draft since. Uh, So, obviously, I'm very proud of that, but also uh, there are unintended consequences, because the reason why we I wanted to end the draft was because a a peaceful country doesn 't need to draft its young people for war. However, we have become a war making nation, and we 've done it with volunteers and with uh, contractors uh, in uh, in Iraq, for instance, we probably had more contractors. There in Iraq, then we had uniformed soldiers. And I think the same thing is so with respect to uh, Afghanistan. And that's a negative unintended consequence, because when you have a country or society ruled by the military industrial complex, they're going to insist on war regardless of what you do. Uh, And that's what's happened
1: Right, and you were also uh, the senator who stopped nuclear testing in the South Pacific, was it, or
0: North Pacific? North Pacific, Alaska, Amchitka Island, uh, where the government was doing nuclear testing on a on a missile device, which was obsolete, but the contractor uh, had the political moxie to continue lobbying to keep the contract going. It was a real tragedy, because uh, what's the legacy that's left? Is that underneath the ocean floor there's about three uh, caverns uh, that are about the size of a football field, and they're shaped like a football field, and they contain polluted material that has a half life of a thousand years. One of these sites, the actual Kanikin site, they knew it was it had a fault zone right through the site, and yet they they did explode it. Now, where the th- where the threat of that exists is that this polluted material in a seismically active area could mean that you could turn around and have an earthquake there and uh, and open up one of these three caverns that are there and begin to pollute with this terrible uh, stuff, uh, pollute the food chain of the North Pacific. That's that's the threat that exists for the next thousand years as a result of our uh, nuclear testing program.
1: Yeah, that's just crazy, and I'm glad you were there to do your best to stop it. And um, I guess now uh, one of the things you're probably more famous for is reading the Pentagon papers into the public record. Um, Do you want to relate exactly what that was all about?
0: Well, Daniel Ellsberg, in the course of my filibuster, uh, was thwarted by the Justice Department, putting prior restraint on the newspapers uh, that were attempting to uh, to publish. And and so in his frustration, he found out that I was waging this filibuster. And I keep in mind, I was a freshman at the time. And so he asked if I would use the papers as part of my filibuster. And I said yes. And so I, I eventually got the papers, and I did uh, introduce them into the Senate record by a subcommittee. Uh, and uh, the issue was engaged by Richard Nixon and I was uh, prosecuted in a sense. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled that I was uh, totally correct uh, under the speech and debate clause of the Constitution in uh, requiring uh, and giving information to the American people about the lies. That's what the Pentagon Papers are about, the lies of three Presidential administrations that got us into the quagmire of Vietnam that cost the lives of 3 million Southeast Asians and 58,000 Americans. And they all died in vain because Vietnam is still a communist country and we have most favored trade nation relationship with them. So, what did they all die for is ridiculous. <coughs> And that's that was part of American policy then, and it's still American policy today.
1: Now, um, we also obviously uh, – you and I met during your 2008 campaign for president, and um, I was happy to write you in despite any uh, other problems that we may have had over the course of the campaign. Um, I really enjoyed working for you, and I learned a lot from you, and I relate to a lot of it on this show on a regular basis. Um one of my fans uh, recently, actually, that I made at Occupy Detroit was he wanted me to tell you personally, uh, his name is Justin, um, and uh, he actually admires you a great deal. And uh, when he had heard I had worked with you, he, he had wanted me to tell you that uh, you were his
0: favorite candidate. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you very much for passing that on. Incidentally, yeah. while you were visiting those Occupy, uh, I uh, was uh, making a tour, a media and lecture tour in Europe uh, from the uh, 23rd of, uh, of September, no, October to the 11th of November. And uh, I visited the Occupy uh, encampment in Zurich, in Paris, and in Amsterdam. And of course, uh, what I was telling them, and it was really my honoring their commitment to what they were doing because they're on the cutting edge of the social change. Uh, and vital change that has to come about. But what uh, what I added to that was a message I had for them, that it's great to go ahead and protest, but protesting is not enough. See, you're protesting the government to change. Well, i got to tell you, these, our government, representative government, and all the governments of the world that are representative government aren't going to change. It's going to continue to be the same old, same old. And so what the protesters need to do is to alter their protest into an actionable course of action. And that is working to bring about votes for the Citizens Initiative that will empower the protesters and all Americans to be able to make laws, to be able to set policy, to be able to hold their elected officials accountable and be able to, to go ahead and enact their own laws if the, if the Congress and their representatives at various levels of government refuse to act uh, to address the public interest. That's what the protest movement. And Of course, I've been working at the National Initiative for Democracy, and now we're going to be calling it uh, the National Citizens Initiative. I've been working at that for, what, 25 years. Uh, I ran for president to try to make this known to the American people. But the media uh, covering the presidential campaign never asked a question about it. And so I continued to press for it. And now for the first time in my life, I see there's hope with the Occupy movement, which is worldwide and which has legs and is going to be around for a long time. The Occupy Movement offers the first opportunity for us to be able to muster people to get out there and secure the votes to pass the Citizens Initiative in the United States. And I'll be working on that because I got a commitment out of Zurich to do it in Switzerland. And uh, there's some interest in France and in Germany and Italy. And so with the United States and those countries Uh, It could make a significant difference if we were able to enact the Citizens Initiative in any one of those countries. It would demonstrate to the world that the people can be empowered and they can operate in a partnership with their elected legislators. And, of course, they become the senior partners the minute they come aboard.
1: I guess basically, you know, that's uh, in fact, I'm getting comments right now, ironically, from the Occupy Wall Street chat room that I happen to be linked to at this at this time. And people are saying you should have won the nomination in 2008. You're getting a lot of support here from Occupy Wall Street. Um, you know, people talking about, they, you know, I love Mike Gravel is, is coming over right now. And it's ironic, actually, that we're talking about this today because I was posting on the Occupy Wall Street forums about today's show. And there was somebody who had. Uh, something about national referendums in there. Some guy apparently had been doing his own research and said, hey, I've been doing my own research, and I found out that you can get constitutional amendments passed via national referendum. And I was like, well, that's kind of ironic. Maybe you should tune in tonight, and I gave him the link.
0: I hope he has, because, you see, the terminology is confusing. Uh, Most people know about the word referendum a well, referendum means the government is referring something to you, and that's all you can do is vote yes or no. What I'm talking about is not a referendum, because we don't get involved with what the government's doing. I just want to empower the people to be able to set policy, to be able to hold uh, the, their elected officials accountable, to be able to make laws. That simple. And that can be done. That can be done. What we... What we need to do is enact this legislation, which uh, which you can go to the website. Uh, right now, it's the National Initiative for Democracy, and uh, you have got more that you can say grace over. You could do a Ph.D. program off of what we've got on that website. But we're now reorganizing that website. Hopefully, we'll have it in place uh, come January, end of January. Uh, And at this new website, and we'll change the name to the National Citizens Initiative or the Citizens Initiative, and people will be able to vote. Now, they can vote right now, but since we are changing and improving the legislation and changing the name, we're going to have to close the election that's going on right now and start it de novo because everybody has to be voting uh, on the same uh, piece of legislation. But once 60 million Americans vote for this, and it's not a national election conducted by the government, it's a national election conducted by Philadelphia, too, that will be totally, totally verifiable because we will have – it will take 60 million-plus votes to enact the national initiative or the citizens' initiative into law, and we will have paper ballots for every one of those citizens that vote in the affirmative for this so that it can be totally, totally transparent and not corrupted by any forces out there, the government or corporate society. Now, this, this, this was really what we're trying to do is to bring about a change in the paradigm of human governance, and it will take money out of corporate money out of politics. By the time corporations wake up to what we're trying to do and begin to attack us and hack us, The people will be also waking up. At that point, it will be Katie bar the door. The people will not be denied this empowerment, which is vital if we're ever going to have a government by the people.
1: And I guess basically to break this down in layman's terms is that you're talking about giving the people back. I mean, we use the term referendum only because people are familiar with it. People are already doing this on the state level. Like here in Michigan, we were allowed to vote in favor of medical marijuana. The national initiative would enable us to set up systems kind of similar to the Swiss government, correct me if I'm wrong, um, wherein in the Swiss government, you know, in order, for example, to go to war uh, in that government, you have to actually have a referendum like it's written in their constitution. And although we're not saying that necessarily, but with your system, if a war has fallen below 30 percent approval rating, then the people have the power to stop it.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's it's easier than that. It doesn't have to follow any – here, the minute you put in place the Citizens Initiative where people can set policy and make laws, well, we could – you and I, Neil, and some of your friends that are listening could turn around and put forth an amendment to the Constitution that would take two votes of the people six months apart. And the two votes on a majoritarian basis and the people could change the Constitution that the United States could not go to war without a vote of the American people. That's what we could do if we could get the national initiative into position. And and like with medical marijuana here, I believe very strongly that not only we should have medical marijuana, marijuana should be totally deregulated, decriminalized. We should decriminalize the entire drug war. Drugs are a public health problem. It's not a criminal problem, and all of the money that we've spent on the drug war is gone to naught. The problem is not any more ameliorated than it is now. And I'm sure many of you saw Ken Burns' prohibition, which the conclusion of that experience in the 20s of uh, prohibi- the prohibition of alcohol was the one of the great, great American great mistakes. It was a tragedy. It brought about criminality. It brought about more alcohol. It brought about more drinking. And we had the good sense to end that. We have not had the good sense in this country to end the prohibition on drugs. And the sooner we do that, the sooner we'll be able to deal with that problem in an intelligent fashion as they're doing in Switzerland and in the Netherlands.
1: Now, um, we've also, okay, basically, we've talked a little bit about how they could affect drug policy with it. We've talked about how they could affect war. You know, what about ridiculous things? In fact, I wanted to ask you about this for the longest time. You know, I know that as a senator, you would have, you know, uh, basically caused hell to try to stop the the bailout of the banks. Do you want to go on the record and talk about that?
0: Oh, God, yes if this doesn't show the duplicity of the obama administration and the bush administration here people are going unemployed i mean we're, we're we're essentially at the edge if not in a depression or the first phases of a a depression that could go worldwide and so what what did the the administration do it bailed out the banks what did the banks do with the 700 billion That was what's visible. Now we know that they were given trillions of dollars by the Federal Reserve, and not only American banks, but foreign banks. And so what did they do with that money? Well, they they re-energized themselves, uh, privatized themselves more completely, paid out unbelievable shameful bonuses, and continued to foreclose on mortgages uh, of people that have been suckered into uh, in, into a toxic assets that bothered the banks. The federal government spent one trillion three hundred million dollars buying the toxic assets, that means these phony mortgages, uh, buying the toxic assets of the bank. That was $1.3 trillion. Now, we could pay off all the loans that all the students have who have recently graduated and what they're holding and what they're incurring, we could pay that off with a trillion one hundred million billion. And I gotta tell you, the money would have been better spent paying off the loans of students who now graduate owing 50000 dollars or more, can't get jobs, and are literally in a bankrupt situation and would remain such for several years. This is, this is a national tragedy. And so the government finally makes a big deal in effect. Oh, we're not going to let the banks do it anymore. We're going to let the government do it. When I was speaking in Europe, I would ask students, well, how much do you pay to go to school, graduate school? $600. The same thing in Asia. Here, to want to know how bad things are in the United States, you judge a civilization by how they treat the young and the elderly. Well, we do a terrible job on the young because we're not even in the top 10 in the world in our educational system. And with respect to the elderly, our health care, we spend three times the amount of money on health care, and it doesn't match the health care systems of of Canada and the European countries. And all we get is this canard that, well, it's socialism if we had single payer. No, single payer just means... We use one central device, the taxation device to pay for health care and education and and that device does not mean government control. We can set up all kinds of other devices to control the uh, the health system and the educational system that could improve it far beyond what we're experiencing today
1: now um you know it's it's once again Mike, I gotta tell you it's great talking to you. I actually just got a message that a uh, some people that are currently out occupying a for um a home that's in foreclosure um are sad that they're missing the show. A guy just uh, messaged me and he wanted me to, you know, he wanted me to relay to you that uh you know that much love is coming from Occupy Detroit. Um And I
0: feel it, and I feel it. I gotta tell you, let me repeat again. W- what changed my view, I doubted that I would live to see the enactment Of the citizens initiative or the national initiative well let me tell you with the occupy movement it's the first time I really feel that I've got a chance to see it before I die and what's going to make that possible is the people who have the guts to get out and occupy they're on the cutting edge all they've got to do is realize and we're working our hearts out we will be able to equip them come February March to be able to get on the street with ballots and getting people to vote to empower themselves. Just give us two, three months here and we'll be able to, when when the Occupy movement starts on its spring offensive, we'll have the tools out there for them to join the citizens, the national citizens initiative to get Americans to vote, to empower themselves so that we can deal through lawmaking and through policy decisions on the agenda that the Occupy movement has brought to light.
1: That's really awesome, Mike, and very inspiring. And, you know, we were thinking the same thing. Do you remember Han, uh, Hans Barbet?
0: Oh, do I ever? He's
1: great. He's a yeah. great guy. Yeah, he was down here, and um, he, you know, he kind of was one of the people who got me involved in Occupy Detroit. And uh, it's interesting, actually, he and I were talking about this. It's like, you know, man, we really hope that Mike is getting into this because. There's a bunch of people there that are already saying direct democracy is something that they'd like to see, and they practice kind of a form of it in the consensus decision-making model. I don't think that we could necessarily translate that into a national level. But
0: well, well I saw that. I saw that in in the uh, encampments that I was there. In fact, mm-hmm. I I participated. I didn't talk, but I participated in watching them. And you're right. You know, they wave their hands in agreement like you do for a deaf person. Uh, and then they cross their hands with their fists when they object. And it is a consensus. These i got to tell you, for the government to have tried to use police force to shut them down is is appalling. Here you had this pure, pure system governance, consensus governance, and it was working. And then you had the government letting people out of jail so they could go sabotage the efforts of these encampments. Well, i got to tell you, <clears throat> just as well. Because it's it's pretty cold, and you don't need to suffer the cold. But come the spring, come the spring, that's when the new offensive will start. And I'll tell you, we will be have the wherewithal. We'll be raising the money to equip the, uh, the Occupy movement to now put their money, not their money, put their work where it counts. And that is to get the votes, the 60 million-plus votes. We need to make this the law of the land.
1: The law of the land, the idea that we, as individual citizens, can propose laws and change policies that our government um, does that we do not agree with, um, is an amazing power that I think that the Occupy movement, in particular, you know, should really be looking into. Um, just in case anybody, just in the you know, in the in the moment, is thinking about it, Mike, uh, is ni4d.us still correct?
0: yes it is and we're going to be changing the url uh, later uh but but that works right now and like i say the the website is is so academic we're trying to make it uh, more user friendly but if like i say if you want to do a phd the stuff is there on the website to do it but you can vote you can vote for the national initiative and uh, and you can contribute whether it's a dollar $5 we've noticed over the period of the years that on a consistent basis, uh, for every vote that we get, we get a contribution from about 10% of the people. It's probably five dollars, ten dollars, but it amounts to for every vote, it amounts to a dollar, dollar and a half. So that means that once we get the voting pattern going, because we got to get 60 million votes. There's no easy way to do this, but once we can get the ball rolling and getting people on the streets, getting people to vote through Facebook, getting the people to vote on the Internet for this law. And then, of course, we'll need the money because then we're going to verify. We're going to verify every single vote. And it will be a paper ballot that will be either signed via the Internet with an electric signature or a physical signature on the street. And and that way, the people will know the total transparency of it and we'll be able to defend ourselves from anybody who questions whether the, the 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 people are voting in these numbers for their own empowerment. And the law, I gotta tell you, it will do the job. The people will become the senior partners and they will be able to set policy for the United States of America, and they'll be able to their laws will be subject to constitutional d- determination they have to be constitutional laws, but the people will also be able to set the con- to amend the constitution, like I said earlier, with two votes. Now most people don 't realize uh, why the people were denied this power uh, i uh, neil i don't know if I sent you the zip package where I have uh, Chapter 12 and Chapter
1: uh, You sure two. did. I, I've
0: okay. read your book, though, but yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, well, Chapter 12 outlines, and I have a zip package, and we'll get it up on the website, uh, The where it clearly shows, and we've all heard it, whether it's George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, uh, James Wilson, all the founders and forebears said that the people should be able to change their government to satisfy their needs in the future. The problem is that the framers of the Constitution did not want to give us that power because that would have meant that we would have opposed slavery from the get-go. Slavery was enshrined in the Constitution, and in order to get that passed by nine conventions, that's Article, 9, Article 7 of the Constitution, uh, by nine conventions of states, which is made up of elites, and it was the elites that bought into slavery uh, and the nature of representative government. And of course, as a result of that, they denied what they said the people should have is the power to make laws and change their government. We are now with the citizens' initiative, the National Initiative for Democracy. We are now completing the work of the founding fathers who sort of messed up in uh, 1787 by enshrining slavery.
1: You know, I tell that story frequently when people talk about, you know, get corporate money out of government. I, you know, I relate all the stuff that you taught me in your book about, you know, the fact that the system was designed from the start to facilitate the 1% over the 99%. You know, I tell them the story about the aristocracy of the founding fathers, you know, who essentially were protecting their rights. It's nothing new. You know, and when I tell them, I'm like, you know, the system as it's written right now is not written to be fixed. It's not fixable. You know, they made it that way to begin with. You know, it's like the delegates, you know, who got to basically when they changed it from, you know, ratifying the Constitution via the people and instead changed it to the delegate system. You know, well, who wins the delegates? Well, obviously, it's going to be the people who have the money to go around and campaign because the average layman can't leave their farm or their smithy or whatever. You know, So it set a situation from the beginning that it was going to be the rich who were going to be voting on the Constitution. And you get – you know, there are statements from some of these founding fathers who said things like the wealth of the nation should govern the nation. So we were kind of set up to be a representative democracy pretending to be – or a plutocracy pretending to be a representative democracy even from the beginning. It was kind of a scam. I mean um, do, do you want to comment a bit on that?
0: Well, yes, and I can add to this. Well, that's exactly what happened. You know, when the founders came together uh, in uh, 1787 in Philadelphia, and, and of course, you, you recall, this is a very secret meeting. Well, they said they had to make it secret. Well, I don't particularly buy that necessarily. but uh, And they said that, well, they had to have it uh, agreed on by conventions. Because the technology, the scholars will tell you today, well, the technology wasn't there for the people to ratify. Well, that's an outright lie. You could ride a horse from Georgia to Maine in 30 days. It took nine months to ratify the Constitution. You're going to have five or six uh, 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 votes uh, on ratification by the people. The reason they didn't want the people involved was because they had the example of what happened in Massachusetts. Uh, Eight years earlier In 1776 when we declared independence The, uh, the Constitutional uh, Convention so, Not the Constitutional The uh, Continental Congress Said go back to your states And reorganize your governments Because we just declared independence from Britain Well in Massachusetts in 1778 They filed a constitution That contained slavery The people voted it down overwhelmingly. And so John Adams wrote a new constitution in uh, 1780, and it outlawed slavery and the people voted for it. Well, in 1787, the members uh, who were at the convention uh, recognized that if they were to put slavery in the constitution, the people would not ratify it. Whether it's down south, in the deep south, they would not have voted for this. We had the least amount of slaves at the end of the Revolutionary War. That was the best opportunity to do with slavery in the United States. Slavery didn't become the economic engine of the South until the invention of the cotton gin. That's what made it more valuable. And so had we had we had the guts of George Mason, who voted against the Constitution or the ratification uh, in, in Philadelphia who was a slave owner and said that the only way we're going to end it is by ending it. And, of course, they locked it in so tight. The major elements of the Constitution. Here, we Americans, we love to really pat ourselves on the back and revere the Constitution. The document to revere is the Declaration of Independence. That's the document that declared that all human beings are created equal. Eleven years later, the framers passed a law, the Constitution presented it to the conventions of nine states that enshrined slavery for life. They're, they totally lost their moral compass. And, it, and they locked in this process that after the first efforts to, to debate the issue, that was the first issue out of the box and with the new Congress, they then had an understanding, we will never discuss this again in the Congress, and it took a civil war, it took a civil war to end slavery, the scourge of slavery, and it didn't really end it, because what happened, we had Jim Crowism for another nine years, uh, and and with wanton, wanton violation in southern states of the Constitution of the United States. Little wonder that you have to realize that the answer is with. We have only two venues to deal with human governance. One is the polity or what we call the government, the other is the people. And if the people are to deal with this problem, they have to be empowered with the procedures to make laws, to change constitutions, which is what our founding fathers all said they should have had way back at the beginning from the get-go. And so when people say, Oh, we, you know, we just we've got to take back our country. Hell, we never had it. It's always been in the hands of the elites. And why is it that the American Constitution has been copied around the world? Because it makes it so easy to take the elites of a prior governing system and transfer it to a new governing system, which we call representative government.
1: Now, Mike. Um, uh, one thing uh, I think your mic might be just a little bit too close. Um, okay, can... I'll stay
0: away. Well, <laughs> yeah. I get ex- I get excited when I talk about these subjects, Neil. Now, I know that's why I love you, Mike. That's why you've always
1: been an inspiration to me. Um, I I take a lot of that into my own speech style because of you. So um, that being uh, the case, though, um, we're kind of talking about the fact that the system was broken from the beginning, and you know the other half of my listeners are involved with uh, the Venus Project and the resource-based economy and the zeitgeist movement. Um, And I talked to you a little bit about this. Hans is involved in it as well. But to break it down in layman's terms, it's the, you know, we're talking about how the system is changing in such a way that, you know, humans need to evolve, you know, that we've kind of gotten to a point where the days of jobs, you know, being able to sell one's labor for money are kind of becoming a thing of the past, that uh, technology is automating jobs, that it's, You know, that it's basically we're getting to the point where the the time in which we could, you know, kind of, you know, work for someone else to be more, you know, be more useful to someone else than their money is kind of going away. And I talked to you about uh, the advocate, basically the advances in technology that we could be using to free mankind from a lot of that. And I know that it's in the future, you know, and I guess uh, but, you know, we talked a little bit about it. And a lot of it, what allowed me to get into this idea was the stuff that you said about your own attitudes about alternative energy Um, renewable resources things of that nature Um, do you want to comment a little bit about this idea of making the whole world off the grid
0: that's that's right no you you really put your finger on it Uh, and as you caught recall way back when I was touting uh, Lewis Kelso's binary economics Uh, there's no reason why we have to have the capitalist system we have and Wall Street Wall Street is nothing but a glorified Las Vegas it's nothing but a gambling casino and uh, and everybody weighs on it. That's not what makes my life meaningful. We we know that as we become more cybernated, we're going to have less and less need for people to do the grunt work. And so the people that will do the grunt work should get paid very heavily because uh, that's a difficult job. And there'll be some tasks that need to be done. But what we really need to know is that we've got to get away from the system where we distribute money as a product of work. Because as work declines, and of course what happens is unemployment increases and everybody gets on the dole. Well, what we need to do is redefine work so that we recognize that work has to become a pleasure. Here, I'm 81 years old and I work seven days a week. In fact, I wouldn't want to live if I couldn't continue to work with something of a vision that motivates me. So, but we're all like that. We all want to do something meaningful with our lives. And the, and the two areas that I think that are naturals for growth is going to be education. Now, what, it, what, it, what is beautiful about people who have money and they get older? Well, they go back and get more education. They go back and become enlightened. They've developed hobbies that are, that are fruitful and productive. Now, that's what should be open to everybody. But that's not the way we're structured. We're structured with a capitalist system that's motivated by greed and selfishness and, and gives no, no, no room for sharing, for loving, for understanding, for empathy. That's what we need to move the world forward. And you're so right, Neil. We, we have moved with our technology, we have moved light years away from 1776. And yet our structure of government was designed back then and does not keep pace with the needs that we have in the world today. And then you see the problem that people won't own up to. And that is, oh, we can't have a world government because, my God, the, the world government, that's, that's, that's the new world order. Well, I've got to tell you, the new world order is there. It was set up when Bush the father was president. And the new world order is what's running the world. And let me give you the study that I discovered when I hit Zurich the last month. And that was, this was a company or a foundation that studies management. And this study came up and said that they looked at 43,000 corporations to study their interlockedness. And so lo and behold, they winnowed it down to 1,350 global corporations that are interlocked either through directorates or through family relationship. And those 1,350 corporations control 60% of the world's wealth. We have been globalized through everything except our consent. And the control is in the hands of corporations who control the government, who then control our society and they're doing one hell of a lousy job.
1: You're absolutely right, Mike, and that was very inspiring. You know, it's so awesome to hear you, you know, in your fire, you know, people are commenting, Holy crap, he's eighty one years old. <laughs> I was like, well he's a Vietnam era senator. But, you know, age is definitely a state of mind. You're still a young, fiery activist. When I listen to you, you sound just like, the, you know, the 20, you know, somethings that I deal with every day in the Occupy movement. Um, you know, and I hope that, the, the you know, because you're, you're inspiring people now. I'm seeing it in the chat rooms, you know, and you, you made a big impact on people in the, you know, in the presidential campaign. Um, and. I think that's actually you'll you'll notice this is kind of a new rule that I find for myself is the the people who are the best candidates tend to be the ones they try to eliminate in the debates first.
0: And <laughs> How true it, that
1: is. Yeah, you know, and it's and and kind of like when you look at it that way, you know, you went first and then Kucinich and then you know and then Paul and those are the only three you know candidates that I really cared for as far as mainstream and um, I got to say I, I've also kind of come to admire Dennis Kucinich. Um, he's one of the only uh, current serving. Uh, candidates, you know, not candidates, but congressmen who actually just openly came out and, you know, they bit the bullet to, you know, to, to support Occupy Wall Street. Uh, what, what well, are your thoughts he's great. on that?
0: He's, oh, he's great, and and he's going to have a tough time getting reelected. I hope he'll have a lot of support from the uh, occupiers uh, in 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 Ohio, uh, and because they're they've tried to re- they try to get rid of him several times, and I think he suffered to some degree redistricting. So he's concentrating on getting himself reelected. And we need a voice like that in the Congress. We need somebody, even though they marginalize them, we need them there to speak up uh, and to, and to shame the others. Uh, they're, and they're unshamable. I got to tell you, the Congress is, it's just unshamable in the terrible things that they do. Uh, and they do it constantly. Uh, and, uh, irresponsibly. I, I, I don't want to launch into a whole area about what's going on with Iran, but but I'll tell you, uh, the Obama administration and the Congress are acting well, not irresponsible, and could well trigger a world nuclear war.
1: We talked about that, actually, and I've linked the, the brilliant interview that you had with Russia today. I was very happy to see that, and so was Hans. Um you know that you got on russia today that's a that's a great network um they, they seem to have a lot of great stuff on there um, oh yeah
0: they are and I'm invited to Russia uh shortly uh to to go ahead and uh visit with them uh about possibilities in that regard
1: that's excellent, excellent and you did a lot of work in Korea too. How did that pan out yeah. uh, uh
0: well uh we've got an organization there it's somewhat dormant because we couldn't raise the money to go forward but uh but it uh it uh it will come back to life because I've got interest in Switzerland because if we can get the United States going with uh occupy now uh we will be able to go forward uh and do the same thing uh in Switzerland with occupy now uh and interest in Paris and in Germany and in Italy so what, because the Occupy movement is worldwide, I mean, I saw no difference from what I saw in Zurich. And the, in fact, in Zurich, one of the leaders of the Occupy movement was a young kid. I say young; he was in the mid-20s, uh, who who was born uh, very very near Springfield, Massachusetts, where I was born. And here we are in Zurich, sitting outdoors talking to a group of people, and he was introducing me, and, and and I was just so proud. He was an American over there, expat, and he was right there involved with these uh, with these Swiss people, young people who were protesting. So there's a chance that we, the, the first thing I've got to do in the next three months is, is to get reorganized with the national initiative into the national citizens initiative, get the uh, uh, voting redi- redesigned, uh, and then turn to the Occupy movement for their spring offensive to take up the, citizen, the national citizens initiative.
1: Now, I mean, let's let's look at a little bit just to kind of put into perspective for the listeners what could be accomplished with such a you know with such a system. You know, if you want an independent investigation of nine eleven, which I know you support, Mike, <laughs> yes. you could absolutely get it. You know, with, with in, a, in a heartbeat.
0: With in you know, a heartbeat, in fact, I would, I would join with you, and we would file an initiative, and I'm sure there's thousands of people that would join us, file an initiative that we want a new independent citizen's investigation of what happened on 9-11, what happened leading up to 9-11, what happened on 9-11, and what happened in the aftermath of 9-11. I personally believe that it was a false flag operation. I can't prove it. It's my own intuitive beliefs based upon the obvious evidence of looking at the implosion of Building 7 and the implosion of the Twin Towers. You could go into the last 10 years, we have seen a body of knowledge surface that is an absolute embarrassment to the government. And one of the worst things that Obama Obama did after he got elected was to say, we won't look back. Well, that is a communication that says, "Oh, we won't look back because we 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 know there's crimes back there, but we're committing crimes too, and we don't want you to get in the habit of holding presidents and Congress and cabinet members accountable for crimes against mankind." And. And that's and that's, of course, what Obama set the stage where the government doesn't want to have any investigation, nor does mainstream media, because they're totally complicit with corporate America in keeping the lid on what happened.
1: Well, you know, even if it's just from the perspective of people like Kucinich and and Paul would say that it's just a matter of even if you don't believe it was a false flag, it's pretty obvious that if it wasn't, somebody was really asleep at the frickin wheel. You know that's that's you know it's Paul and, pers- nobody,
0: and, and, and Neil nobody got fired here. Right. What happened to the intelligence? This one of the obvious obvious elements of nine eleven is that we had a major intelligence fa- uh, failure. The first one was when nobody in our intelligence system realized that the Soviet Union was imploding. The second one was not to be able to predict uh, and and really thwart the possibility of nine eleven. Well, that's an intelligence fee. You know what happened? They were getting $56 billion in appropriation to intelligence. Well, right after that, we gave another $15 billion, and now it's up to $80 plus billion plus and nobody got fired. Nobody got fired. I mean, what kind of a democracy is it where everybody in government is so busy protecting their backside? That's what it's all about, and that's the nature of the secrecy. And here again... We see the Obama administration going after WikiLeaks, going after Bradley Manning. Bradley Manning should get out of jail and be given the Congressional Medal of Honor. Stop and think this 22-year-old kid had the the sense of integrity to look at what the government at at his level was reporting to the public and what the government was actually doing and saw that it was wrong and, and put his life on the line to turn around and reveal that information. And, of course, they say that Ellsberg and I are heroes for the Pentagon Papers. Well, i got to tell you, we don't begin to become the heroes that Bradley Manning and, and Julian Assange are to the, uh, to the ability to sustain and uh, inform the people and sustain a real democracy.
1: That's really awesome, Mike, you know, but, uh, you know, other issues just like that. You want out of the wars? You know, do you want to set it up so that the government can't get any wars? Do you want to recall politicians? That's another one that you can do on the state level, you know. And and at the
0: federal level. And at the federal level. Yeah. Because you keep in mind, Neil, you're well aware that when the Citizens Initiative, the National Citizens Initiative is enacted into law, it will be a lawmaking device For the citizens in every government jurisdiction of the united states if you've got something that you don't like the way the city council is doing or the school district or or the whatever you can file an initiative under the same using the exact procedures that are available to use at the federal level you could do the same thing at the state level and so that's the beauty this tool is not just at the national level it is a tool for citizens to use at every level of human governance.
1: Now, um, here's a good question from actually a longtime listener. Uh, um, her call sign is A-Girl. A very, um, she says, I very much admire your reading into record the Pentagon Papers, allowing the American public to hear the truth. Concerning your idea for people voting en masse on issues, it would again require that they have the facts concerning whatever topic they are voting on, how do you propose to have a more transparent government to ensure that they have the facts instead of propaganda such as your action on the congressional floor? Is there anything that you that might have the interest now that you would like to access research and reveal to the American public? I guess this is multiple questions uh, but yeah well,
0: let's start I, with the first, first off, one i i've got i can I can talk to you at length about what the government's doing on uh, with respect to Iran, but the question she's posing is a very good one uh and that's what people have to understand. You see, she's at a disadvantage. She doesn't have the advantage that you, Neil, and I have in in actually knowing what the law says, what the National Citizens Initiative says. It sets up a communications procedure that you would have to be actually hiding under a rock somewhere with earplugs to not know that there's going to be an initiative on a specific subject that affects you in the constituency you live. And so the procedures are there for a, a, a what I would say as perfect as can be had, an informational communication process so that people can know about the initiative. Now, it doesn't mean you have to vote on the initiative. And, and if you don't vote, that's fine. But if later on you don't vote and the initiative that, that is enacted affects you, I'll tell you, you'll learn your lesson, and the next time you'll pay attention and vote. But you have to read, and I would recommend that this young lady... Uh, read the text of the initiative, uh, the parts where we talk about the communication, the process that will take place. Because here, the, the difference between the citizens initiative and the initiative process that we have in 24 states, which is not very good law, because it's not deliberative. Lawmaking is a serious undertaking, and it must follow procedures, be that a markup, Rather, a hearing, a qualification, a markup, a communication, advisory votes, uh, and communications that literally will use the, uh, the networks, uh, will use, and, and every initiative at the get go will have a, a web, website where everything that's done in the advancement of that initiative will be video streamed. All of these activities will be video streamed. And then when it comes time to vote, you'll have one week, 24 hours a day to vote, either uh, through, your, uh, through a, a kiosk, through the telephone, through a physical vote, or through the Internet. It's all going to be set up to meet those needs with total transparency. Now, the key to making this work is for the people to have their own agency, and that would be the Citizens Trust. It's the agency that will implement the the procedures on behalf of the people, for the people to make deliberative laws. And that's what every legislative body that I know of in the world, it has. It has its own procedures. And there is no state, or country, even Switzerland, because we would pass a new initiative there, even Switzerland, that, we do, that the initiative process has to act independently of representative government. If it's not independent, they will control the process. Now, it's a win-win because the people can set policy and representative government can then operate the day-to-day needs of government. It's a win-win, and representative government will do a hell of a lot better job than it's doing because politicians are not dumb. They want to keep their jobs, and so what they'll do is they'll pay a little more attention to what they should be doing in satisfying the public needs rather than spending all, half their time or more than half their time raising money and selling out to special interests, which will not be active in because they are outlawed uh, in the constitutional amendment that is part of the National Citizens Initiative.
1: Now, a couple of questions that are coming up and um I know the answers to them but I'd prefer that they, you know, that they hear them from you um is well and well first of all there is one I would like to elaborate on a little bit myself which is when people have concerns about direct democracy because sometimes a majority can do something, you know, that we don't like. They they banned gay marriage in California, you know, but but as you pointed out to me earlier the difference is is that when a representative government system gives you a bad law, you know the, the politicians in, questions are in, in question are kind of inclined to cover their mistake rather than fix it. When we, the people, make a mistake and make a bad law, then we, the people, are empowered to fix it with the system that you're proposing. Is that
0: correct? Very much so. And in fact, it's a given. One of the biggest benefits of empowering the people to make laws is the maturity it will bring about right now the structure of representative government is designed to keep citizens in civic adolescence that means what's adolescent behavior oh i want that but i don't want to pay any taxes i want that but i don't want to pay any taxes that's adolescent behavior now how do we go from adolescent behavior to civic adulthood real simple you do it the way we do we raise our children you give our children more and more responsibility. They'll make mistakes, but then that's the process of learning, is learning from your mistakes. And so I i don't have a plan with the National Citizens Initiative to change human nature. I just have a plan to put a better tool in the hands of people so that they can take responsibility for their self-governance and not be beholden to the policies established by the elites where they can't take responsibility because they're not their policy. They're foisted on them. The wars that we have are foisted on us, are, are, are forced on us by the military-industrial complex which needs wars to expend the munitions so that they can make more munitions and obviously make more profit.
1: Now, um... Somebody's actually saying, "Why
0: isn't he president?" Um, <laughs> because, <laughs> well, here, be sure to give me one minute before you sign off because I do want to close on a very interesting quote.
1: Sure, absolutely. We have, we actually, I added just a little bit more time to be sure because um, there, you know, when you were talking about the uh, the issues of the law um, and more specifically, you know, what we're going to be able to need, you know, we need a citizens' initiative to protect ourselves because if you think that you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, or, you know, is, is the, is the, begin, you know, it's like the worst that we're going to get. And that's just the beginning. And, you know, I, that's actually why I wanted, I, I can tell you are anxious to talk about Iran. You know, if we end up over there, you know, it's going to be a nightmare. So, I mean, go it, ahead and it share will with the audience. A, It'll
0: be a nuclear confrontation here. If, if the United States, which is acting totally here, you just saw where your uh, United States lost a drone, the most sophisticated drone we have, stealth technology, and uh, oh, it went down with a malfunction in uh, in western Afghanistan. What crap! Mm-hmm. The, the the military only made an announcement after the Iranians said they shot it down, and apparently they shot it down in pretty good shape. And so it was an act of war. This is now. The, do you think it's a coincidence? That four nuclear scientists have been assassinated on the streets of Tehran? That there's been explosions on the military bases? Do you think that's all an accident? When the Congress appropriates on average $200 million a year for regime change inside of Iran? Mm-hmm. I, and, and then we turn around and we, and we transport bunker buster bombs to Israel in case they decide to go ahead and attack Well, i got to tell you, Iran has defense capabilities. They have missiles that could rain down the destruction of Israel. And once they started to retaliate, Israel would have to retaliate with nukes. Now, what do you think Pakistan is going to do with its nukes if Israel retaliates on Iran, a Muslim country, with nukes? And what do you think the United States is going to do saying that, oh, these people are all gone crazy and we've got to nuke ourselves? I mean, this is a sick situation and it's being led by Barack Obama and Benjamin Netanyahu of, of, uh, of, of Israel. And I'll tell you, it is endangering, it is endangering the population of the world.
1: You know, I agree with you completely, and I mean, as you could already imagine, um, Mike, you know, you've been a great mentor to me, and uh, I have to say... And I like the way
0: you've turned out, I want to just put that on record, I like <laughs> the way you've turned out, and you've grown, and you've got your own radio show, and you're being a leader of doing the right things, bless you, bless you for your growth.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Mike, you've been a big part of that, you know, and now, um Mike, I guess, uh, you know, basically, cause I, I know you only wanted to be on for an hour tonight. I just extended it to be sure that if you had anything left that you wanted to say, you I know, do, and
0: I do want to get off. <laughs> yeah,
1: I totally understand. I just, I know that, you know, there's you always end up like this. So, and, um, I'll definitely chat with you off the air just a little bit if you have time, but, um, other than that, uh,
0: um, well, you know, no, I won't. I've got to go to the bathroom, but but let me get my 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 clothes in, okay? <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, now there that being
1: said, um, yeah. go ahead and give a closing statement to the people of Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Detroit, and the Zeitgeist Movement in the Venus Project.
0: Very simple. Two thousand years ago, a Roman senator by the name of Marcus Cicero defined what freedom was all about. He said, "Freedom." is participation in power. The central power of representative government is lawmaking. And so until the people become lawmakers like their elected officials, they will never have freedom and they're not free today. Those are the words of Marcus Aurelius. Not Marcus Aurelius, Marcus Cicero, 2,000 years ago. So what we're trying to do is, boy, I'll tell you, we're just reinventing the wheel. It's been there all along.
1: Thank you very much, Mike Gravel. And, um, and
0: thank you for having me.
1: And everybody in the audience is thanking you, too. And I really appreciate you being on tonight. And I hope that we can have you on again to talk
0: more oh, about these things. I'll be happy to, because we got to organize the, the Occupy movement, okay?
1: Absolutely. All right, everybody, I'm going to leave you with some parting words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows.
0: This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're
1: listening to V Radio. We're good, Mike. Go-